This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach, heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and I'm really so thrilled to welcome Degrassi franchise co-creator and executive producer, Linda Schuyler, who is here today to talk about her awesome new book. And you can see this is very dog-eared and well-read, which, of course, the mother of all Degrassi, a memoir, which tells the whole story of the long-running Degrassi series, 35 years of creating television that has really resonated with teenagers and adults alike, not only all across Canada, but all over the world. I can't wait to share some of the behind the scenes personal stories in the book about the grit, grace, and determination that was necessary for Linda Schuyler to make it as an entrepreneur in the independent television industry of the early 1980s. Her deep fondness originally as a teacher for teenagers has made her a champion for adolescents all over the world. As her show tackled some very real and authentic themes such as teenage pregnancy, drug abuse, mental health, where an ensemble cast of students at the fictional Degrassi High School faced various issues and challenges such as sex, bullying, date rape, drug abuse, body image, homosexuality, issues around LGBTQ+, gender identity, domestic violence, gang violence, self-injury, suicide, abortion, and many others in an honest, real, authentic, sometimes humorous, and always very compelling way. The show was and is addictive in all of its forms. It started out as the kids of Degrassi Street and it morphed into Degrassi Junior High, Degrassi High and Degrassi The Next Generation and now Degrassi. As well, there was Schools Out, a 1992 movie of the week, a six-part documentary, Degrassi Talks, also in 1992. There was also the soap Riverdale and so much more. It's all in the book. But before we meet Linda, I just want to tell you a little bit more about her. Always dedicated to the art of storytelling, Linda is best known for work that explores the human experience, breaks stereotypes, and encourages communications. Linda is the executive producer and co-creator of over 500 episodes, wow, of the internationally recognized multi-award winning Degrassi television franchise. As a longtime educator, storyteller, and entrepreneur, She is a mentor and guest lecturer at various universities, and she maintains an active involvement in a range of community and professional organizations. One of these organizations is Kids Help Phone. Linda's relationship with Kids Help Phone dates back to 1989. She attended the opening gala for Kids Help Phone with the Degrassi cast, and the partnership continued with the actors throughout the years. The cast participated in PSAs that were specifically tied to the subject matter of the episode. There were also Kids Help Phone cards at the end of certain episodes for viewers to know that they could call Kids Help Phone at any time if facing a difficult issue. When tackling difficult issues on the show, suicide, bullying, etc., the Kids Help Phone team also provided Linda and the show with valuable research materials to help shape the episodes. The relationship between Linda and Kids Help Phone continued through the next generations of the series, and cast members of Degrassi The Next Generation 
also participated in PSAs for Kids Help Phone around the Bell Let's Talk Day initiatives. Linda's mandate on the show is to remind young adults that they are not alone in their struggles. She feels like this mandate ties in perfectly into Kids Help Phone being available to young people at all times. Linda is a member of both the Order of Canada and the Order of Ontario. Her memoir, The Mother of Aldergrassi, was just released in November 2022. And I just want to play something for you before we meet her, because the moment you hear it, it will take you right back to the 1980s. And you can't help but feel a warm and nostalgic glow when you hear this song. Let's roll that clip. my goodness. Linda Schuyler, congratulations on all of this and welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. After I finished reading your book, Linda, this wonderful book that I have right here, The Mother of All Degrassi, a memoir, I just started watching some of the episodes again and it just took me back to really one of the most groundbreaking and successful series of all time really unlike anything ever before on television, so deeply entrenched in our Canadian culture, and yet it became internationally renowned as well. And at the center of all of it is you. What do you feel when you hear that music, that original theme song for your uber successful, never-ending, beautiful show, Degrassi? Oh my goodness, Judy. It's so amazing to hear it because, you know, when that song was created, it was when we the show was still quite small and we really had no idea that it was going to have an impact to kids all over the world and that it would not only just be a series, but it would be another series and then there would be another incarnation and that it would become a franchise. It was never the intention. The intention originally was just to give voice, given a voice of empowerment to teenagers who I had spent eight years in the classroom teaching that they didn't have a voice on television. So that that was the impetus why I wanted to do it. I, I saw all these beautiful, rich stories. I was teaching in the um, downtown inner city Toronto in the 1970s. And I saw diversity there that I'd never seen in my small town of Paris, Ontario, where, you know, everybody was white. And these kids had stories to tell, and I wanted to share them with other people. Well, I I love that. I love that you began as a junior high school teacher, but you were always passionate. You had that sparkle about bringing media arts into the curriculum and you loved film and you ultimately combined these two passions. And I love in the book that you 
not only share your kids' stories, but how you talk about sharing their lunches, which brought you into so many other worlds and traditions different from your own. And your students gave you, as you write in the book, homemade pickled olives, and you ate baklava and spanica pita and lasagna. And on one occasion, a student even brought you a bottle of homemade wine. And early on, you wanted to make this 16 millimeter documentary about your students as they juggled their lives in Canada called Between Two Worlds. And you did your first professional pitch and got your first green light. What do you remember about that early passion to make your first film? That first film was driven by the fact that, yes, I was a junior high school teacher, but while I was teaching, I had also been working on my degree and I was taking whatever media studies courses I could at the time. And let me tell you, in the 1970s, they were few and far between, but I found what I could. When I started my new job in Toronto, I did say to my principal, I said, you know, I'm really quite passionate about the media and I'd love to find a way that I might be able to, you know, use my passion for the media with my students. And he just was rather nondescript. He said, oh, sure, Linda, but, you know, <laughs> basics are important. Well, and I said, oh, yeah, 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 I'm going to do the basics. Don't you worry. But it was as I stood in front of my class every day, giving them the basics, looking at them. And then, as you say, I shared lunches with them. They would come in after school and talk to me. And I realized they had such really good stories to tell. So I went down to my principal and I said, now, look, we're doing really well. Basics are covered. What if we made a little documentary about my class and they've got great stories to tell about what it's like being here in school during the day and going home at night where many of them speak a different language. There's different traditional expectations. And um, he just sort of nodded and said, yes, yes, that's nice, Linda. Now back to the basics. <laughs> so I sort of thought, OK, I'm scuppered here. And then it was one day in like November and it was one of those drizzly, miserable, rotten November days. And I get a call to go to the office. And of course, it doesn't matter that I'm an adult. You get a call to go to the office and you think, oh my God, what have I done wrong? And I looked at my attendance record and that was sort of up to date and my lesson plan straightened my hair and went to the principal's office. And he said, Linda, come in and close the door, please. So I do. And he said, I've been thinking about your project. And I want you to know that Pierre Elliott Trudeau right now has got a push for multiculturalism across the country, and he's made pockets of money available for people who want to do projects. I have some of that money, and I'd like to put it into your movie. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> you must have been so excited and gobsmacked. I oh. can't. <laughs> it was incredible because because he really he was a lovely man, but he never gave anything away. So you just you didn't know, and um, you know. And so then I walked out of there and I thought, oh, this is so awesome. We don't have a script, but that's okay. My kids and I were going. I know they've got the stories. We'll work to make it. But I thought, oh my word, I'm going to make a 16 millimeter documentary film. I guess I'm going to be the camera person. So I signed up at the Toronto Filmmakers Co-op and I took a weekend course on how to run a 16 millimeter camera and learned about aperture and loading and, you know, <laughs> negative and emulsion. <laughs> and then so we embarked on this journey whereby, you know, we part of the English class became writing the scripts. And uh, we also worked on weekends and in the evenings and we filmed multicultural events. We filmed hockey events. I took my class skiing. So I saw kids from Jamaica skiing in snow for the first time. 
<laughs> it was really, really, really fun. Didn't you also find a treasure trove of 16 millimeter cameras and all this equipment that you, you ended up having access to? Was it at that time, this beautiful like treasure trove of stuff that yeah. you were allowed to use? Well, my vice principal introduced me to the um, Lou Wise, who was head of the audiovisual department for the Toronto Board of Education. And we were chatting and he was opening some cupboards and I looked inside these cupboards and there was like all kinds of Super 8 cameras and, and editing stuff. And then there was this Super 8 stuff. There was a Bolex, there was an Aeroflex, there was like, and I said, Oh, who uses all that equipment? And he said, well, sadly, no one. He said, I, I make the odd thing. I said, oh, I might be able to find a use for some of that. <laughs> Aren't you something? Aren't you? So now you've gone from just being a teacher to being a filmmaker and really kind of teaching yourself how to do all of this. It's pretty incredible. You dedicate your book, The Mother of All Degrassi, a memoir to Bruce. Mm-hmm. Degrassi's queer, queer grandfather. Can you tell me about your relationship with Bruce Mackey, who served as the Toronto District School Board as a teacher and a librarian at Earl Grey Senior Public School for 25 years? And I know he opened his home, 98 Degrassi Street in Toronto, to you and your co-director at the time, Kid Hood, where you shot a short children's film, which led to the Canadian TV series, Kids of Degrassi Street. Can you just tell us more about why you dedicated this book to your dear friend, who was also the maid of honor at your wedding, if I remember in the book? Totally. Good, good. <laughs> oh, Bruce was my very dear friend who I met the first day that I started teaching in Toronto. And um, we were kindred spirits. You know, we were both passionate Aquarians. And he was one of those folks who said, oh, Linda, whatever you need. And he would he would drive me down to the Toronto Board of Education and, and we would load all this equipment up into his car. And he was the one who found me the book that would become eventually the pilot of the Kids of Degrassi. And he opened his home so we could shoot there. It was because of Bruce we ended up on Degrassi Street. But despite all of Bruce's enthusiasm, and he was a lovely teacher, the kids adored him, um, he lived a duplicitous life because we're talking about the 1980s. And in the 1980s, which is really not that long ago, it was not proper for a teacher to be gay. So Bruce lived a double life. He was this magnificent teacher during the day. And then on weekends, he lived this crazy, mad life, packing in as much as fun as he could at the Toronto bath scenes and in the clubs. And I watched this as somebody who really, really loved him very much. And I just thought, it is so wrong that this beautiful man cannot be allowed to be himself at school, that he has to be so, you know, overly pumped on the weekends and then come and live the stage thing. So watching him go through that, and then we lived through the terrible bath raids by the police in the late 1980s, where Gay men were outed. Some of them committed suicide. It was absolutely deplorable. That gave me a lot of impetus to be committed to the LGBTQ plus storylines that have been a mainstay for so much of the Degrassi storytelling. So, you know, that's why I, I dedicated it to Bruce, not only for his passion as a fellow teacher, but for opening my eyes to the injustices that were being served to um, gay folks at that time. I think it even took 20 years for you to tell Marco's story. 20 years. It wasn't something you were just able to do. It took many years of processing and being ready for it. And then you did the Marco story. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, 
one of the um, the horrible things that um, I remember Bruce coming to my house very early. It was the last day of school and he came to my house very nearly banged on the door and he, he just shoved a newspaper in front of my face and he, he said, have you seen this? And it was about a gay man had been killed in Hyde Park. And the basis of the report was that there had it was a robbery. And so I said, well, Bruce, why are you so upset about this? And he said, Linda, this is not about a robbery. This was a gay bashing. That man was killed because he was in Hyde Park and he committed no other crime than being gay. And I said, oh, Bruce, come on. It's not. It doesn't say it in the paper. And I had a lot to learn about the media and how it reported on gay folks in those days. You know, a few months later, it did come out that it was right. It was a gay bashing. The fellow who had been, unfortunately, the victim was a friend of Bruce's. It hit so close to home. <laughs> but when I'm starting to tell story, and it's just around the time I'm starting on Degrassi Junior High, Degrassi's been interesting because we've always been um, bold to go there in our storytelling. But at the same time, there's only, you have to be aware of what the times are like and can accept. Well, it was so raw that we were experiencing the police raids, that we weren't ready to tell the story of a teenager who was bashed. Yeah. Uh, the closest I could get to gay storytelling in junior high was when Caitlin doubted her sexuality and when Snake's older brother came home and was gay. But mm -hmm. as time went on, as society became more accepting, we were able to push the boundaries more. But it took until I think it was like 2002 or four. I can't remember what it was, when we finally told the story of Marco, who was gay bashed. It took that long before I felt, and even then there was a lot of sensitivity about it um, from our broadcasters. Mm -hmm. And sometimes Canada was a little more uh, receptive than the US, right? I read that throughout the book as well, that depending on the storyline. I also love the story of how this all began, Degrassi really all began with Ida Makes a Movie, a children's book that you read that was the story of a young girl who wanted to make a movie and persevere despite interference, kind of like you, from, <laughs> from various people. And originally, this was going to be a lovely animated children's film. But in your first meeting with lawyer Stephen Stone, who at the time was at the law firm McCarthy Tatro <laughs> and is now your husband of over 25 years, he gave you this salient, wise piece of advice and suggested that you acquire the rights to the book. And you did one of your first wins. Can you tell us how you turned that book into your first film, which was to become your first series, The Kids of Degrassi Street? <laughs> it is funny that that um, it, Bruce had found the book. And I love the story because there was it was no I, the book you have to remember um, was actually about cats, <laughs> but Ida was the was a cat who was a feisty young cat who was the child of a single mother who was an artist and they lived in a lower economic area in the inner city, and she made the movie and she ended a, a film contest, and she won the first prize which of course was wonderful, but the judges misinterpreted her message. So she had this whole pang of conscience because how could she accept an award if they didn't know the truth of her movie? So I loved all of that. And so, uh, yes, I wanted to buy the rights for the book. <laughs> this is when I first did meet Stephen Stone and he told me, no, no, you don't need to pay me. You go and do it yourself, but don't forget me. Which <laughs> <Which> I didn't. Thank <laughs> you, advice. It was smart. <laughs> and then when we shared it with our distributor, the, um, the script, he said, you know what? 
I think it would be really great if you considered doing this live action. We've got so much animation out there. And I've been doing, since I left teaching, I'd be making a lot of documentaries. And the thoughts of doing a live action drama was really quite exciting. And what's interesting was when we did it, we cast from the neighborhood. We cast age-appropriate kids. They wore their own wardrobe. We shot in the inner city of Toronto on Degrassi Street in Bruce's house. And there just became a lot. And, and of course, it was she had a crisis of conscience and had to make her own decision without any adult intervention. And I didn't realize it, but those were some of the key elements of Degrassi that would last not just through the kids of Degrassi Street, but right up through the 500 plus episodes of the franchise. Absolutely. So it's very interesting how just sort of those innate things that I felt passionate about were introduced in that very first episode. Well, I loved how keen your instincts always were that a 15-year-old should play a 15-year-old because as yeah. you write in the book, you can see it on their face. If they're not 15, you'll, you can tell. So unlike Beverly Hills 90210, where Luke Perry was 25 or 26 playing a teenager, your kids were actual kids. And I have to ask you, of course, about one of the most, you've worked with generations and generations of teenagers, but I love your story in the book of discovering Drake, of course, whose real name is Aubrey Drake Graham, who worked with you for seven seasons on Degrassi. I don't know if people realize that. What was it about Aubrey? Because you and everyone knew pretty early on that he was going to make up the 10th player of your cast that season. You were like, he is it. He's got that it factor. We're going to go on a short commercial break and we're going to find out all about Drake's audition for Degrassi when we return with Linda Schuyler. More with Finding Your Bliss when we come back, back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And I'm here with the executive producer and co-creator of the Degrassi television franchise, Linda Schuyler. And Linda, I just asked you before the break what it was about Aubrey, who, of course, we all know as Drake now, where you just knew right away that he had that it factor. It was quite something because, you know, going on into Next Generation, we were continuing exactly what we had done before, age appropriate. We were creating an ensemble cast. It wasn't a star vehicle, but it was an ensemble cast. And I think we cast like about nine of the characters and we were looking for Jimmy Brooks. And we just hadn't found that that person that connected with the camera that had the right charisma. And, you know, I, we went back to all the agents, guys, go through your roster, see what you can find for us. So Norbert Abrams said, well, you know what? My son's got a buddy and he doesn't have any acting experience, but it's like to see him. I think he's kind of a nice kid. <laughs> so, so I said, sure. Like, I don't care if there's no resume. So Aubrey, Aubrey came in and he does the audition and he reads the audition piece. And there's like four or five of us sitting behind the table watching and he finishes. And we were all quite quiet 
And he looked and he said, oh, oh, did I do something wrong? I, I can do it again. Please, please let me do it again. And we said, no, no, that's very good. Thank you very much. You can go. So he said, oh, oh, and he, he wanted to shake our hands and thank us. And, and he tripped over the light stand and the PA grabbed the light stand and he, he felt very nervous, shook our hands. And then he's kind of backed out of the room going, thank you, thank you, thank you. Wow. He closed the door and we all looked at one another and we said, we have found our Jimmy Brooks. <laughs> wow. All four of us behind that table just were captivated by the charisma. Wow. And he did a very pivotal, important, groundbreaking episode with you. Yes. And I can picture in the book down the long hallway, following him down. The, can you tell us what was that scene that, I don't know if just anybody could play that. And he was so compelling in that episode. Oh, well, our process in the show was before each episode, we would do a read through of the script and we would gather the cast and around table and the writers and the producers and we would read the script through. And the cast were not allowed to read the script beforehand. I wanted them to have it read it like they were the audience. But in the case of when something pivotal was going to happen to a character, I would meet with them beforehand. So <laughs> I had to meet with Aubrey before we did the read through. And I said, now, Aubrey, I have something to share with you about your character. Your character is going to be shot. Mm. He goes, no. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> but it's okay. You're going to live, but you're not going to have the same life that you did before. Wow. And we talked about how important we were all reeling from the effect of Columbine. And we wanted to show a school shooting and what that impact would have over time. And so Jimmy Brooks, who was, you know, destined to be a star athlete, have university scholarships in terms of his fictitious world, had his future ambitions cut down from him the day we had a school shooter. Mm -hmm. And then over the course of time, we watched as he diligently year after year pursued his rehab. And um, so at the, at the very end, when he graduated, because when we came and he said, can I please walk again? And we said, well, look, we can't make this look too simple because it's not too, it's not fair for kids who are going through this and will never walk again. So we we did episode after episode of him being so working in the gym and doing his exercises. And finally, when he graduated, he very clumsily walked across stage on a pair of crutches. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house. But it was what that was for me was such an important storyline because... Every episode where we saw Jimmy Brooks in his wheelchair or in rehab, even if the story wasn't about that, he could be doing some goofy homework storyline. Mm -hmm. But we were reminded every time we saw him, the devastating effects of a school shooting. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a one episode thing. It stayed with us. Well, one of the things about Degrassi is without sensationalizing, and this is the incredible balance that you've struck without ever sensationalizing the stories ring so true i even remember reading in the book that during a class discussion one of your students fluidly moved between the first and third person as you write sparking a red flag in you as a young teacher who realized this student likely lived in an alcoholic household and after getting the student into counseling a light bulb went off for you so is this where that a lot of the stories came from from the real kids and their real stories how did you create stories and choose stories that were so authentic and real and yet not sensationalized? And that's 
a trick. <laughs> and a lot of credit goes to the wonderful array of writers I've worked through over the years, because despite what some people think, I never wrote an episode of Degrassi. I was there for each one of them. You were even in some. Yeah. Oh, yes. On your voice. <laughs> Lucy's mom. I was a school teacher. Yeah. Um, but we would always, we would begin each season and we would put on our whiteboard, what were the issues that we hoped that we could get at that season. And then we would look at the characters that we had and we would try to find the right fit for the story that we were about to tell and the way we could have the impact like we did with Jimmy Brooks in the school shooting, the way we could with Spike, who is not, we don't just have an episode of her being a pregnant teenager. We follow her for four more years as she is a single mom going to school. So we were always looking to find the right mix of the theme, the storyline, the character. And then, yes, you're quite right. We we didn't want to be ripped from the headlines, so we didn't want to be sensational. But on the other hand, we didn't want to be trivial. We didn't want to say to young people, oh, don't you worry, it's going to go away. It's going to be all right. No, we wanted to be there with them and say, look, we understand this tough and let's explore it. Mm -hmm. So it, it was keeping that balance and making sure that we also had some humor along the way. <laughs> so many people, Linda, in the industry, when I told them I was reading your book and loving your book and doing this interview today, were quite exultant with praise and adoration not only for what you've accomplished, which is heavy stuff, but for the manner in which you work. I just interviewed this morning to prepare for this interview, Melissa DeMarco, the host oh. of there, and an actress who was cast not only in your Degrassi, but also in your show Riverdale. I just want to play a bit of that clip for you right now. Let's roll that clip. Melissa, I was so excited when I was reading the book to realize that, oh my God, Melissa is a big part of this book because she's been a part of Degrassi. She's been a part of Riverdale and in fact, got cast over and over. And so I just want to ask you, Melissa, what is it about Linda Schuyler that really characterizes her from all the rest? You know, uh, it's an honor for me to be here to talk about Linda Schuyler and her incredible memoir is really, you know, really says a lot, which I know you're going to talk to her about. But what separates her from other creators and producers is uh, there's a level of kindness in her decision making and, and her demeanor. You know, one thing I think about is if you really look at her, the breadth and scope of the work that she's done, they're all ensemble cast, Judy, right? So it, it, she really works on honing actors in a very ensemble way. And that's a testament to, you know, how she likes to create characters and stories and how everything's intertwining. You know, and, and the great stories with Linda is she doesn't just separate herself in her own room. She'd come down and sit and have craft lunches with the cast and the crew. And I can see now, but she was listening to our stories and kind of checking out our personalities because they might find a home in an episode, you know, in a story, because she really was observing not only the, the teenage characters, but the adult characters. So I'd say she's a really good observer. So I think uh, in terms of Linda, real kindness on set. It's what happens behind the scenes that makes her so special and what makes Degrassi and all her productions special. It's how she treats the ensemble aspect of her work. How cool is that? <laughs> I think I've just been outed. <laughs> Here's another clip from my conversation with Melissa DeMarco. 
Do you remember your first audition with Lyndon? I don't know if it was with Lyndon Kidd or if it was with Lyndon Stephen, but do you remember? So, um, yeah, so I was part of the next generation, which I like to call the Drake years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I do remember that because I worked on a show previous to that Riverdale, for Linda and Epitome Pictures, I already had a rapport with them before I got the call to say, hey, you know, we want to cast you as the science teacher for the next generation. So I came in, I think it was season two. They'd already done a season. And eventually I remember, you know, being in a, in a read through, getting the script and like, wait a second, Miss H is the principal now? <laughs> I was like, what? So I remember just how excited that was. But something I think I want to share is how us as cast members started to see how big Linda's productions were. When I did Riverdale, I was, you know, doing my grocery shopping. And this was season one, actually. It was very early on. And someone goes, Ugh you know what, your sister should be disgusted, disgusted with her behavior. I'm like, what? I'm like really close to my sister. What has she done? <laughs> like, And I'm like, oh, you know what? Irene deserves the fireman. You just tell your sister to keep her hands off of him. I'm like, oh, they're talking about my character. <laughs> because I was like, it just hit home. It's like, That's how powerful her storytelling was because it was like the Canadian Coronation Street. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing happened when I was in Vegas and I was walking and someone goes, Miss H, Miss H. And I didn't (laughs) register. They were talking about me and the elevator shut. So this group of people were coming towards me. It was hitting all across North America and the world. So she really understood how to build actors in a way that they were strong characters that people resonated with. She had so much to say about you, uh, such positive, beautiful stuff. And I had a similar interview yesterday with Corey Lee, who did five seasons of Degrassi with you as well. And she talked about how incredible it was to work with you as well. The privilege of being on Degrassi. Here is Corey Lee. Yes, Linda and Steven were very instrumental in my career. I would not be where I am without them. They gave me my first lead role in a TV series, which was called Instant Star. And then I was blessed to be on Degrassi for five seasons. Linda is a beautiful pit bull in a skirt. She does not take no for an answer, which is why I love her. I definitely was intimidated by her a little when I first met her because she's a lady that knows what she wants. But I, as I said, I would not be where I am without Linda and Steven. And I love them so much. And I was actually just recently at a beautiful party for Linda for the launch of the book. And it was so lovely to see both of them. So from all, all across the generations, and there's many, many others, and I can tell you some other interesting things along the way, but I have to ask you, Degrassi just feels like a family. And I don't know if that was the ensemble casting or you at the helm creating that sense. But you also brought back many members of the cast with each new series, Kids of Degrassi, Was it a conscious decision to keep going, always casting age-appropriate kids, but as they graduated, you seemed to want to carry on with these beloved characters, but you realized we didn't want to hear about the university story. We wanted the high school story. So you kept bringing new characters, but still let us meet some of the beloved older characters. Was that a conscious decision at the outset, or is that just how it sort of played out? It's kind of how it played out. Because when I did Degrassi Junior High and Degrassi High, when we graduated the kids from Jurassic Junior High, we had 
nobody left hardly <laughs> because we hadn't been populating the school from the bottom up. So um, we realized when we went into next generation that we did need to keep populating the school. So every year where we would move up a year, and sometimes it would be every two years, we did play with time, but we would introduce newbies into the grade nine. And they were often siblings of people we already knew or cousins or had some connection, but not always. And then when we got to, I think it was about season five, where we were ready to graduate the first tranche of kids, which included Paige and Marco and... um our broadcasters were very nervous about that because they said, mm, our audience loved these characters. So we created a university environment and we followed some of these students as they went to university. And we did the same the next year when we had another tranche, which would be Emma and Liberty. We put them in a different university environment and followed stories. Well, when our research came back, there was less interest in the university stories. And we, we learned something about that, that it was the school. The school is like a pressure cooker. And, you know, in a way, the school is kind of like jail. It's got its own rules and regulations. When you get to university, it's a much more laissez-faire atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So people still wanted to see our characters who had graduated, but they liked it when they came back and visited their siblings at school mm -hmm. or they came back as step-parents. But we learned quite early on that the school was the focus and it's what happens inside those doors that, you know, young people want to know about and parents want to know about. Yes. So yes. It, it, was, it was a learning lesson as we went along. So interesting. It's just so cool how far reaching the show is. When one of your stories of Degrassi, The Next Generation, Jake Epstein was on my show, I remember him talking about how he was on Broadway. He was doing uh, Spider-Man. He was doing Beautiful. And he had one night that was kind of tough and maybe he was feeling a bit homesick and and was quite emotional and left the theater. And all of a sudden, two or three teenage girls stopped and went, Jake, Jake. And he thought it was to say, great performance on Broadway. And they said, Degrassi, Degrassi, Degrassi. Can you take a picture with us? And he said he was like smiling through the tears because he had to be a pro. He was representing Degrassi. But like, how wonderful is that? when you hear these stories or even in your book, you tell about a fan from China and you come to meet this fan and, and the fan says, oh, Canada, that means beaver tails and Degrassi. <laughs> I hope I'm getting that quote right. But to what do you attribute to how these characters resonate so deeply with audiences all over the world? I've thought about that a lot because it certainly was, a, I, we weren't ready for the wonderful international reach that the show seemed to have. And I think it's because we all remember our teenage years. Like there's a small period in our lives, like four or five years in our life. But I'll bet you, you can go back and recall some of the moments there more than you can some of the ones in your 20s and, and so on. It's because it's that time when we're experiencing so many firsts. We're breaking away from our parents. We want to be independent, but we still want to be looked after and loved. And that push-pull between being part child, part adult, pushing out on your own, yet wanting comfort and safety. That is such a universal thing, whether you're in China or whether you're in Australia. You know, it, it, I had lovely um, letters when there was terrible bombings going on in Israel. And one of the kids wrote to us and said, you know, we're in a closed room right now and there's no lights on. And what's keeping us going is we're talking about Degrassi. Oh. So it, it's, I know, it, it, it can be quite emotional. And it just, there is a universality about those teenage years. It, it cuts through cultures, you know? 
Yes. And, and it's so interesting. I want to go back to the mail after to the old fashioned snail mail because I love, oh, there's, by the way, I have to tell you everybody that there's so many marvelous photographs in this book of all of it, of Linda's personal life and married life and work and all of the Degrassi's and all the kids and, and so much more. It's just, it's incredible how many beautiful photographs are in the book. It really makes it spring to life. And I was trying to figure out, you know, again, the reach. And I realized it was also when you made that virtual school, you did a virtual school on the computer for people that all these kids were able to connect to. And that was almost like the first MySpace. And then of course, the mall appearances. And I love the story in the book about how two of your leading cast members came to this mall appearance somewhere in the States and in New Jersey or something. And yeah, New Jersey. New Jersey. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and there they were. And you were not prepared for the fact that there were 8,000 screaming fans to the point where the security guards had to say, fire marshal standards, we're going to have to close this off eventually because there's too many kids. That was the level of popularity. Do you remember that day? Oh, how could I forget that day? I mean, Stephen and I were with our two kids and it was... um it was Lauren who played Paige and Adamo who played Marco and the two of them behind there. And then we heard the announcer in front of the doors and they announced who was coming out. They opened the doors and the mall, it was just a sea of people. And they looked at us like, and, and we had to back away. We weren't part of the main entertainment. And we just said, oh. <gasps> and they took a breath. And they walked out of there like rock stars. They waved their hand and they raved at, at, at everybody. And it was unbelievable. And yes, there were a lot of, a few disgruntled fans when the fire marshal shut us down. And this wasn't just happening in New Jersey. It was happening in cities right across the States. Different couples of uh, characters would go to various mall tours. It was unbelievable that, you know, two or three age-appropriate Canadian actors would be treated like these rock stars in major cities across the U.S., it's just incredible. I also find it so interesting that because you've been doing this for 35 years, you've seen the audience change. There was no internet. There was no texting, iPads, iPhones. There used to be snail mail. And there's this fabulous picture in the book of all of this mail, like a mountain of fan letters, really, for you and for the kids on the show. And I'm just wondering, and I'm sure there's so many, but is there a letter or letters that just stands out for you of someone who was so affected by the show that it changed their life for the better? Don't answer that just yet. We're going to go on a short commercial break. More on one of the most popular shows of all time, Degrassi, and the book, The Mother of All Degrassi, a memoir with author Linda Schuyler. When we come back, back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding the Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And I'm here with Linda Schuyler talking all about her new book, 
the mother of all Degrassi, a memoir. It's fabulous, by the way. And just before the break, Linda, I was asking you if there's been one piece of mail that you received from a fan of Degrassi that really stood out for you. There's many. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled to say that there's many. In fact, if you go to the URT archives, there's bankers boxes after bankers boxes of these emails, which is where we went and shot the picture. But funnily enough, one that has a lot of resonance to me is one that came in from a mother. And she said, I just watched your um, show on Marco coming out. And 10 years ago, when our son came out to us, my husband and I kicked him out of the house. And after I watched your show, I picked up the phone and I called my son for the first time. And it was like, okay, that's why I want to make this show, you know? And, and it, there's thousands of other letters, but because it came from an parent and I, I was just really moved by that one. Wow. Linda, you've won so many awards that the book is chock full not only of the gorgeous photographs I just mentioned from your childhood through your entire career and marriage later in life to Stephen Stone, pretty compelling thrilling to read and so romantic. Uh, before, before we talk about the awards, um, I actually do want to ask you about the awards because oh, I remember one year being at the Metro Toronto Convention Center. The, the Gemini's, Gen- yeah, yeah. This was big. Is there a moment, because I know you've won so many international Emmys, so many Gemini's, so many television awards, PBS, Canada, the state everywhere. And unfortunately for everyone, you can read about all of these awards. They're beautifully listed at the back of the book. And again, reams and reams of pages about it. What was it like that night though? Because I remember that night at Metro Convention Center. Was that a pretty heady feeling? It was an awesome night because not only did we win Best Overall Drama that night, and we picked up a couple of best performances and, and maybe a directing one, but we ran won the first ever multicultural award. And we had invited that night to come with us on stage the entire cast of, I think it was Degrassi Junior High or Degrassi High. It, it, they were basically one and the same. I think we had about 30 kids with us that night and our cast represented diversity. And, you know, back in those days, in the 1980s, the word diversity was not used the way it is now. I mean, we did talk about multiculturalism and that was the name of the award. And to stand on stage with all those kids, with all their beautiful diversity and be honored with the multicultural award. It was just a moment. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And they're all dressed up so that everybody is like got dressed up real special, you know. <laughs> it was like the prom scene in an episode of The Grand. Oh my God. You're a member of the Order of Ontario. You also became a member of the Order of Canada. I mean, this is congratulations. It doesn't get any better than that. What are your memories of shaking hands with Ray Natitian in being in Ottawa and getting your Order of Canada medal? Well, my biggest memory of that night is I had my mom and dad with me. And in 1956, we had arrived in Canada as um, British immigrants. And I watched my parents work really, really hard as first generation parents. And, um, you know, it wasn't, we didn't have the easiest of growing up. I mean, my parents, it was a great love story, but money, there was not a lot of money in our household. And not only did I get to shake Raina Titian's hand, but I got to turn around and look at my mom and dad dressed up, you know, in their black outfits and my mom with her pearls. And, and I, I just, I had to thank them afterwards for the courage that they had to be immigrants to Canada, because this was a moment that we wouldn't have had if they hadn't had that courage. Incredible. Just absolutely incredible. 
Well, uh, there's so much. I don't even know uh, how to go because there's just so much I want to ask you about. Um, I do want to ask you about your relationship with your stepson, Max. And I love that he calls you his Belmare. <laughs> and not only have you been successful in your career, but you are a mother really to thousands and thousands of kids and teens everywhere in the world. And you have this wonderful relationship with your son as well. And I'm wondering, was this part of the way that you were able to make peace with your infertility to know that you really are the mother of all Degrassi? You've really changed the world for the better. Well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, Judy, the hardest, I think the hardest words for me to write were the title of my book, because it was really hard for me to own that title, the mother of all Degrassi, because as you point out, I've battled infertility, um, you know, for I, I hadn't intended not to be a real life mother. And, you know, and on set, the kids would call me mom and, and whatnot, and that was fine. And then when Max came into my life, beautiful Max, it became more real. And just to be able to own that word mother and actually say, it's okay, Linda Schuyler, you do have the freedom to use that word about yourself, was a journey. And it's all the kids who have been in my life in front of the camera, behind the camera, and particularly Max, who have given me the courage to own that word. It's incredible. I'm not even getting into the car accident, which was a pivotal moment in your life, but I just want to ask you with regards to that. Do you attribute in some ways your relentless drive to succeed and to survive because of that car accident that you had to go on and you had to make it work somehow? I just felt there was a correlation between those two things. And you know what? It's taken writing the memoir to sort of pick at that scab, actually. I've often wondered myself, like, Linda Schuyler, what makes you so relentless? Um, And I think being a child of immigrants is one thing. Um, I think being the eldest of four siblings makes you bossy by nature. Um, But I was in a car where there were three of us. We had a crash, and I'm the only one who survived. (laughs) And I have to believe, even if it wasn't conscious at the time, that survivor guilt is a big component to my push. And as I said, it's not, it's not being conscious. In fact, I don't think I started joining the dots and, and stringing those thoughts together until I actually wrote the memoir. Wow. 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 There's so many wonderful stories in this book, everyone. I, I'm just thinking of another one right now. When Billy Ray Cyrus wanted to be on your show playing a limo driver, which he did so that he could impress his daughter, Miley Cyrus. What? Can you tell us about that time where your show became so famous that famous people wanted to be in it? Well, <laughs> I think Billy Ray was up here in Canada shooting a, a show called Doc at the time. And uh, Steve Skaney was a director on Doc and on our show as well. And when Billy Ray found out that Steve did Degrassi, he said, can you get me on that show? So um, Steve came to us and said, I don't know. And we said, well, he could be a skanky Australian limo driver for a night. (laughs) So he embraced it because he's such a lovely man. He embraced it. And I said, when he was there that night, I said, Billy, seriously, why do you want to come and be on our show? And he said, Linda, I've done so many shows and my kids say, oh, that's nice, dad. When I went home and I told them I was doing Degrassi, they said, finally, dad, you're doing something that my my friends are going to see you in. Not bad. Degrassi goes to Hollywood was so stellar, and I can't believe we even had Dan Levy now from Schitt's Creek fame. We love him on the show. What was that like? 
He was so funny because it was the first, he had been doing um, after shows, but he, this was his first uh, scripted piece that he did on Degrassi. And he was so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> You wouldn't know it. I mean, he does a great performance, but um, it was really funny because, you know, it was his first foray into scripted and he did a great job, but he was nervous. <laughs> That's crazy. You've really done it all. Do you still have a burning passion to do something or do you want to just relax and kick back and enjoy all of these wonderful fruits of your labor? Well, I can tell you what I'm doing on November the 27th. Um, my husband and I are jumping on a plane and we are starting in New Orleans and we're taking a trip down through South America and we're ending up in Antarctica. And we're spending, oh, wow. we're spending two days in Antarctica before coming home to Christmas. And oh, then lovely. So that's all I'm thinking about right now. Oh, that sounds so fantastic. When you told the Wilfrid Laurier University audience that you thought Degrassi was the world's longest running anti-bullying campaign, I think it was also your savior and your mantra and all of ours too. What does the word Degrassi mean to you? Hmm. Just an amazing opportunity to connect with young people in a real, honest and authentic way. What is bliss for Linda Schuyler? Oh, curling up with my Scottish fold cat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've done so much. You've done so much and you are so terrific. If I had to ask you to what do you attribute to your tremendous success, because your success is unparalleled. So for kids or young people or even older people who are watching this and they have a dream to be a filmmaker or to just do something wonderful as you have done, what advice would you give to them? Well, one is you don't hear the word no. <laughs> you you see that as potentially another opportunity. You don't hear the word no, but you also have to remember which hills you're going to die on. You can't die on all the hills. You can't fight all the battles. So just know the ones that are important. And you don't have to look further than your heart to know those ones. And those are the ones that you will fight and you won't back down from. Linda Schuyler, it's been a real honor to have you on the program. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much. One more question for you. How can people follow you and get a copy of your beautiful book, The Mother of All Degrassi, a memoir? Um, well, just I think it was two days ago. My book should be available in bookstores across Canada. I know you can get it on Amazon. There's a beautiful independent bookstore in, on the beach that is selling it, but I, it should be available right across Canada. And um, I'm, you know, I, I'm looking forward to what people have to say about it. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm going to write a review on Amazon because I, I or, or wherever it is. Uh, thank you again. This was really delightful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Each week we spotlight a singer, songwriter or musician on the show. If you're a singer, please reach out to us. If you're an author, artist, yoga, meditation or mindfulness expert or really anyone who is found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. Also, what did you love about today's show? That might be pretty obvious. Are there any guests or topics you would love us to feature on Finding Your Bliss? You can write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way, let me know. And you can also find me on the Insight Timer meditation app. And of course, you can always follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank our wonderful guest, Linda Schuyler, for being on the show today. Thank you as well to Melissa DeMarco and Corey Lee. 
And a big thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, producer and audio engineer Nayira Amani, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. We're going to close out the show today with a short quote about purpose that I've always loved and I just wanted to share it with you all. And here it is. Do not forget who you are and where you come from. You are made of the brightest stars and the widest oceans. You are made of the highest mountains and the tallest trees. You are made of magic and dreams, wishes and light. You have heroes, warriors, kings, queens, gods, and goddesses flowing through your veins. You come from infinite possibilities and incredible odds. You are here for a reason. And that was said by Nikki Bunyas, Walk the Earth. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.